Lighthouse podcast, and that's a bit of music from Chris Rice, and Chris Rice is a uh, song leader or a song writer, rather from I believe from Nashville, who <clears throat> has some pretty beautiful stuff. So here for Philippians chapter two, uh, verses five through eight on our handout, I'm going to actually read. 6 through 11, or 5 through 11, rather, and then we're going to talk about some of those things with the handout, and we're going to answer some of those questions and discuss a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, particularly in verses 5 through 8. So let's begin with the reading. Let's begin right here in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, through, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What we have there is a poem and the reason that I began with the music is because poetry is a form of art, just as music is. And we want to address that idea of poetry, which is what Paul employs for his letter to the Philippians here in this passage. And it's right in between the ideas that he uses of unity and holiness. So we have very interesting things here in these middle verses, especially 5 through 8, that we see all the way unfolding through verse 11. And we're going to get into that. And I'm going to read you the questions that are on the handout right now. Number three is the question we'll start because it's understanding Paul in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Uh, number three is what stories are wrapped up in this poem contained in those verses 6 through 11. Number four, what does it mean for Jesus to define our understanding of God? What does it mean for Jesus to define our understanding of being human? 
Number five, how does the story of Jesus represent a reversal of the Adam story? And number six, what does it mean for Jesus to not exploit the privileges of being God? So we want to get into that. And there are, of course, uh, questions seven, eight, and nine on our handouts that are very important. And I want us to reflect on those as well. Where in your own life do you need to rethink your humanity around the story of Jesus? That's question number seven. Number eight, how does the story of Jesus reshape your personal understanding of God? And number nine, how does the downward cross-shaped journey of Jesus challenge modern notions of love? Hopefully we'll try to answer all of that as we look to uh, the, the explanations of Paul uh, in these verses. And we want to get a deep, rich understanding of the art that he uses to communicate things. In this case, poetry. So with that, um, I, I just want to continue uh, with a little music, and then we'll get back into the text. back into the text and into the understanding what Paul means with all of this here in Philippians chapter 2. Well, poetry was the thing that I think is decided here. And in 2 chapter 2 verses 6 through 11 is a poem uh, written perhaps before Paul actually writes this letter. So it's something that may have been very central to Christian thought. Uh, it is definitely central for Paul uh, as he writes to the Philippians and wants it to be central in their thinking. And so by implication, I think, or by deduction, I think we too can um, reason that it is central for us. But why? I mean, it's very dense and it's even secretive, it sounds like. And what does it say about Jesus? What does it say about God? And what does it say about the gospel? And I want us to remember that it sits in between those two passages that one of which we haven't really gone into yet, which is after this passage, which talks about holiness. But the passage before we talked about last week was the idea of unity. And so if we want to be a community of unity and a community of holiness, then we have this sandwiched in between Paul says these two things, unity and holiness. He talks about those two things, those two topics. And it's informed, both of those are informed by this poem. So again, poetry that Paul uses here may sound like this is not uh, Christian theology to some. And, and, and many will think, well, 
logic and observation or, or logic and science or, or logic and rationale or, uh, you know, being very reasonable with things is how we need to um, extract everything from Scripture. But in fact, like music, art and poetry are very expressive and convey things to us in such ways that we might not other otherwise understand. So today people often see art, music, and poetry in contrast to logic and science. Yet for many cultures, even in the Jewish culture, through the Psalms, art is used to communicate. Poetry is used to communicate the heart of God in, in much better ways uh, than the ways of their day. And probably a lot better ways than our modern era of technology, logic, and maybe superficial observation, which are obviously limited when it comes to understanding the heart of God. And so for us, this is critical to understand that poetry here is not something that is just a, a peripheral idea, but it's something that Paul uses uh, in the centrality of his letter to the Philippians and probably should be very central to our thinking as well. So what are these things that we need to look at that Paul is using to illustrate Jesus as the model of God? We have some different levels. One of those levels is the story of Jesus. Uh, and that becomes very apparent in many of his writings. Another is the servant poems of Isaiah 40 through 55. Those chapters, 40 through 55, talk a lot about the sovereignty of God and God's covenant faithfulness and the servant of God. Israel looks on while they're in captivity, whether it be Assyria or Babylon. Um, they're in exile and they look on while in captivity at someone who takes on the role of a servant for God, who accomplishes God's will. A very mysterious thing. That's what we meant, what I meant by secretive in this passage or dense. And this is the idea that we find Jesus taking on that role in the servant of the servant in Isaiah 40 through 55. He echoes that. He reflects those passages, those chapters. He's also echoing Psalm 8. This is another level where everything is put under the feet of mankind, David says. Uh, what is man that you are mindful of him and that things are subjected to him? So verses 6, 7, and 8 also reflect on Adam and Eve. They also reflect on the beginning of the human story and how God related uh, himself to us in that story. And it's also, verse 9, the destiny of the human being or the human race. And we're going to be found in glory if we're found in God. Uh, but this is all the story of God encapsulated in this poem. And it doesn't set aside the humanity uh, that we might think it would, but it reveals humanity's royal nature. But it does it in a very different and counterintuitive way. It reveals it through Jesus' humanity. 
And Jesus' humanity is quite different than the rest of our humanity. So there's something about Jesus that has redefined the concept of God. We find that even in the Gospels. Um, the Gospels are designed to do that for us. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 18 uses the word uh, exegiomai, or the root word that we would find in our theological conversations is exegesis, and that means basically to dissect the text and figure out what is being said in it uh, before we kind of make application to ourselves. But that's what Jesus is doing for us. He's making God known for us. That's the word in John chapter 1 verse 18 where it is translated into English, he makes God known to us. In other words, he explains God to us. So he re redefines the concept of God for us. And the Gospels all do this in their own way. So instead of having a worldly perspective of God, a God who rules and dominates with an iron fist like the ancient world and even today's world, and is obviously perfectly capable of doing so, God is obviously capable of doing that, uh, we have from Jesus a wildly different portrait of God. One of humility, as in the Father, who runs and disgraces himself in Luke 15 as he runs through the village uh, in his long robes where he's supposed to be walking prestigiously. That's what Middle Eastern farmers, peasant farmers or fathers did. They, they were prestigious. They did not humiliate themselves by running, but yet this father does that for his son uh, who was in exile who exiled himself and now has returned and he goes off to, in fact, protect the son and reinstate him. And so you have that picture in Luke 15. You have the servant picture in Mark chapter 10, where Jesus says that he has come not to be served, but to serve and give himself a ransom for many. So you even have the idea of a hostage picture here, where he gives himself over as a hostage to be ransomed for us. Well, there's also the story here in these verses of pagan empire, especially the Caesars, and at this time, Nero. And Nero would have done a lot of things to exalt himself as worthy of being worshipped. Uh, he would have built things, torn things down, in fact, and then rebuilt them. Uh, he even redid the Olympics. He, I think he postponed the Olympics so that he himself could participate in the Olympics. And then you would have this idea of him exalting himself in so many ways. So you have a very strong contrast, very strong contrast of Nero, who exalts himself as worthy of worship versus Jesus. And so Paul is using his own contemporary examples, saying that the Caesars, and like Nero, or any rulers of ancient memory like Herod, or Alexander the Great, those guys are frauds when it comes to what is really human. And so Paul sees Jesus as the real thing, the genuine article, as some would say. So Paul is very interested in us learning and thinking and having the mind or heart, rather, of the genuine article. And that's what we're aiming for in each of our lessons.
So everyone knew that the most significant piece of propaganda in the Roman Empire was crucifixion. And so I want to get back into that a little bit more from Chris Rice as we as we take a little break here and uh, begin with the rest of our study. by Chris Rice, and it's called Untitled Hymn, Come to Jesus. And it's a a very unique song that I have come to like. And so I want to continue with that because this is all about um, coming to Jesus in a very uh, poetic way. And uh, in order to do that, we need to see the humility of Jesus, especially in the, the Roman crucifixion of him. And um, this is what everybody knew in the ancient world, that if you wanted to get in Rome's way, this is what you'll get. You'll get uh, crucified. Slaves were crucified. Insurrectionists were crucified. And this is the reason that Jesus was crucified as well, is because that they made him out to be a threat. And they convinced Pilate that he was a threat to the peace and security, which was really no peace and security, of the temple in Jerusalem and the city of Jerusalem. And so you and I see Jesus dying on a cruel Roman cross. And um, these are tools of empire. This, uh, this, Just think of what modern versions are. There is still killings and still exile um, used as tools of modern uh, rulers, modern empire in, uh, in that way. So it takes a poetic genius like Paul to see that the cross of Jesus would be the heart of this poem. For Paul, it is poetry to inhale daily, to chew on, and to digest daily. And if the Philippians, uh, or even we, want to have unity and holiness we too must grasp the implications of the crucifixion of Jesus. We must be able to think differently, to think in a messianic way. And even though we may think of messianic ways as being exalted, they're not exalted in the ways of the world. So this poem is constructed in a very unique way. And I thought that I would include this in our study. You have verse 
7, talking about Jesus' vocation. And then it's balanced by verse 10 with the invocation of Jesus. 8, verse 8, is the humility. Verse 9 is the exaltation. And all of those verses are built around the middle line of the poem, which is in verse 8, about Jesus' death on a cross. And so for Paul, this is central for us to grasp, and it is the upside-down way of thinking about the uh, success of a community having unity and holiness. And so for, for Paul, it, was not, uh, it wasn't controversial about Jesus being divine, uh, in uh, being God in human form, uh, early on for Christians, that wasn't a controversy. Later on, there would be a controversy about that as these verses uh, implicate Jesus in that way. He takes on the form of something different than God. And later on, there were those who began disagreeing, who began teaching a very different Jesus. And there's a host of ways to describe that. Uh, the, the, the ascetics, the um, asceticism, um, antinomianism, all kinds of isms uh, would, would take, Gnosticism would be a general way of grouping a lot of those together and talking about Jesus not being God, and that continues on even in today's world. But in order for Paul and the earliest Christians to even make sense of the biblical story, they discovered that there was no other way to make sense of what was going on with God's story without recognizing Jesus as divine. Jesus' divinity illuminated the entire story of God rather than thinking, well, the more about the story we know, then we'll eventually be able to connect the dots about Jesus being divine. So, in other words, it's kind of backwards for many. Many today think it's the other way around. But, in fact, for the early Christians, even Paul, as we see here in Philippians, that uh, they they had no problem thinking about Jesus being divine and in fact, that was what was needed to understand how the story was to make sense. Because Jesus being crucified, God becoming a man and being crucified and going to death is not the way anyone would have thought would have been a successful way for a king to be uh, exalted. So, uh, Paul uses an idiom here. Um, Jesus' status is what he's talking about as being in the likeness of God. Jesus' status as God wasn't something to exploit. In other words, like Alexander or the Caesars, or even Nero, they would use their um, birthright or their status as a, an emperor, a ruler, and they would use that to exploit uh, their importance or their significance. They would use that to um, enhance their status. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus' status as God was not used for entitlement, but it was used for rather transforming and healing the world uh, through love instead of brute force or coercion. And so we have another pattern here, which is this slave pattern that Jesus doesn't exploit his status. Instead, he becomes like a slave. And we have another 
level here. We have a level in the Bible of Joseph's story. You can hear echoes of Joseph's story where Joseph's story is strange because God's plan was hidden the entire time. And like Jesus, Joseph takes on the form of a slave. He doesn't want to, but he he has to. And then it is finally recognized that God used Joseph to help uh, his family, Jacob's family. And then he also helps the rest of the world, which was in that time um, seen through the eyes of the Egyptians. And he is exalted, Joseph is. After he is after his wisdom is seen, he is God uses Egypt to exalt him. He has uh, the Pharaoh's signet ring. So Jesus is also rejected by family. He doesn't behave like a king is expected to behave. And it's not until his resurrection is that it's understood that God meant all of this suffering for the good of the Jews and the entire world. Just like Joseph, when Joseph reminds his brothers, God used that plan that they had for his suffering as evil. Uh, God used that evil plan, rather, for good, even though they couldn't see it, and it was incredible. So here you have another pattern where Jesus takes on the form of a servant or a slave. And so in verse 8, he is humbled, and he became obedient, even to death, in order to rescue the world, just like in the Joseph story. So this is how the Adam story and the Israel story are now reversed, because in Adam's story and Israel's story, they they took on uh, the things of the world to improve their status, and they thought that this was what was going to uh, exalt them. The devil, the serpent, rather says, "This is what you're going. To, this is how you're going to be like God." And God, of course, um, knows better than that. And so you have the Adam story and the Israel story. Uh, Israel's story is idolatry as well. They they thought by seeking other ways, they would be exalted among the nations instead of letting God do it. And that's Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 1. God would exalt Israel above all the nations of the earth, but uh, not if they left his ways, his covenant ways. And, that, and so that's the Israel story being reversed in Jesus. So death is now not the end of the story. And so you have Paul developing this in the other letters as well. So that's another pattern, the slave pattern of Jesus and the thinking that we're supposed to take on. Um, This is how we're supposed to process all of this is by reflecting on the stories of Jesus. Uh, Reflecting on the story of Jesus and his crucifixion uh, and the totality of his existence where the crucifixion is at the heart of everything. So Paul does this in other letters as well, like 1 Corinthians, Philemon, uh, other places, very, very prevalent. Uh, Romans, exactly. All of these are very good for that. And so right now we're here in Philippians discovering it in this way. So Paul does for Jesus the opposite of what the ancients uh, did uh, for their rulers and even what we do now. Uh, What he does is he gives him a resume or a bio uh, but in our world, even in our world, we recognize that a, that a bio or a resume is supposed to list all of the great things about us. 
that's how we advance our status in society. We show people what we have accomplished, what we have done, what we're about, uh, what they can uh, recognize, how they can benefit from us uh, by understanding where we've been and who we've been around. But Paul is saying that Jesus didn't do any of that. This is why it's so upside down. Paul is giving Jesus a resume or a bio of shame and rejection. And that's very different for who would be thought to become a king someday. So in this poem that we have, an art form that Paul gives us, which is a very dense uh, a very secretive in some ways, if you don't know the scriptures, a very insightful thing. It's what is it saying about Jesus? What is it saying about God and the gospel? In this poem, Paul is saying all kinds of things, but he's reflecting and echoing Old Testament scripture. And he's telling us, especially in verse 5, how to think. And it can, it can look like it's an upside-down or counterintuitive pattern. Uh, but this is what Paul is saying, that as Christians, we need to be able to think in these ways. It's very counterintuitive for us uh, to, to not defend ourselves or not justify ourselves. But for Paul, especially in this poem, Jesus surrendered and let God do the defending and let God do the vind, uh, vindication and justifying. So you and I must learn to think in the same way. And for those without insight into these things that Paul is talking about, of course, we can look like fools. Uh, but for those with insight, boy, uh, we, we can, we can uh, look like poetry. Uh, Paul, you and I uh, can create this living poetry, uh, which is very beautiful and full of grace and hope. And hopefully you've enjoyed our little study of Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, especially 5 through 8.